1: Let's look at our text for tonight. We're going to cover James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. James writes, my fellow believers, do not practice your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality toward people. Show no favoritism, no prejudice, no snobbery. For if a man comes into your meeting place wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes comes in and you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in this good seat and you tell the poor man you stand over there and sit down on the floor by my footstool, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with wrong motives? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith as believers to be heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you, in contrast, have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress and exploit you and personally drag you into the courts of law? Do they not blaspheme the precious name of Christ by which you are called? If, however, you are really fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is, if you have an unselfish concern for others and do things for their benefit, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, prejudice, favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as offenders. For whoever keeps the whole law, but stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder... You have become guilty of transgressing the entire law. Speak and act consistently as people who are going to be judged by the law of liberty, that moral law that frees obedient Christians from the bondage of sin. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. But to the one who has shown mercy, mercy triumphs victoriously over judgment. And we begin with verse 1 where he says, My fellow believers, so we don't have to guess about who he's talking to, do not practice your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality toward people. Show no favoritism, no prejudice, no snobbery. And your translation may actually say, my brethren. But the Amplified makes the original text very clear there. He is addressing believers. And this is a command that James is saying to them. And he's saying it emphatically. If you are people of faith, and this is present tense, so he's saying, if you are people of faith, stop. Stop it. Stop showing partiality. Stop showing snobbery. Stop acting this way towards others. It's contrary to faith. It is the practice of ordering your soul after the flesh. Now, only God judges flesh. And if you are attempting to live your life by faith in absolute dependence on the spirit of truth, reject such thinking, taking that thought captive, repent of that attitude. Now, James is addressing an ongoing issue that these believers were accustomed to participating in and were to some degree settled in. One commentator wrote, We do well to remember that James wrote to a very partial age, filled with prejudice and hatred, based on class, ethnicity, nationality, and religious background. In the ancient world, people were routinely and permanently categorized because they were Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, Greek or barbarian, or whatever. A significant aspect of the work of Jesus was to break down these walls that divided humanity and to bring forth one new race of mankind in him. Do you know what that one new race is? It's right, the new creation. That's who you are. We are one. Now here's the thing. If I don't believe in gravity, does that nullify the law of gravity? No, it doesn't. What Christ did in creating Really just two men. One being the men after Adam. The other being the men after Christ. There is no other race. There is no other ethnicity. There is no separation along lines of intellect or or prosperity. There are only two. We recognize only two. And we greet both of them in love. Because our approach to the creation of God is always God's approach, or God's approach is our approach, which is to express love. Indiscriminate, agape love. It's not our love. It's his love. And now that we are a new creation, it is becoming our expression. James makes this command in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and he demonstrates the emphasis of that the Spirit is giving to the command. Now, in that, there's a very clear assertion to the deity of Christ, and one commentator wrote, he said, if anybody would be a good reference for the deity of Christ, it would be James, because James was his half-brother. He saw him from birth, To death as in the flesh. And he saw him both as brother. And then as savior. So there was no break in James perspective. And he declares Jesus. Glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus lived this life. And he did not discriminate against anyone. Anytime we want to know the pattern. For the new creation life, we can simply look at the Gospels and watch Jesus. Because he was, in fact, the second Adam. He was living out as we should live. Now, that doesn't mean that we are going to go out and spit in the mud and make uh, healing for eyes, or we were going to make the leper. Because he operated under a different principle. It wasn't what he did, it was why he did it. Everything that Jesus did, he did by command of the Father. He did it, yielded to the Father. And everything that the Father commanded him to do, is there ever a time that Jesus operated under the command of the Father that it didn't come out, it didn't happen? Hmm? Jesus said, go heal the blind man, and the guy couldn't see. Did that ever happen? No. Because everything that the Father commanded him to do, the Father empowered him to do, right? Do you see a pattern there? That's how he's called us to live, not in the bankruptcy of flesh, not in our own invention, but literally in complete yieldedness to the work of God by virtue of his command. One commentator wrote, the Lord Jesus was polite to the woman at the well in John 4. He was as polite as he was to Nicodemus in John 5. He was as gracious to the woman who who touched the hem of his garment as he was to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. He was as open to poor blind Bartimaeus as he was to the rich young ruler. He had no respect of persons. He was as honest and forthright with the Syrophoenician woman as he was with Pilate. He treated everyone with the same love, the same interest, and the same care and concern. He was not condescending when he was dealing with the publican and sinner, and he was not compromising when he was dealing with those who occupied the seat of power. He gave the outcasts and the untouchables the same gentle, loving compassion that he extended to the scribe and the Pharisees. Sometimes the Lord did not approve of people's behavior, but he looked beyond to the individual's deepest need and treated them with dignity no matter what. Now, that is how he's called us to live. Now, believe it or not, that takes a lot off your shoulders. It's not easy being judge. It's not easy to try to weigh everybody's motives, everybody's actions. It's not easy to banish some and accept others. To maintain that level, that rule of law and control in your own life is hard. And it's harsh. Because to whatever degree you cast judgments on others, you're going to cast them on yourself. To whatever image you call them to, it's the same image that you're going to worship. So the Bible says, you judge not lest you be judged. Well, guess what? We have all tried it, haven't we? We've all tried to be judge and jury, both of ourselves and of others. Now, the the harshest I've been as a judge has been with me. It's always been with me. And because I was harsh with me, I would be harsh with others. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the Spirit of God would come to me and gently remind me that I had no obligation to be a judge. (laughs) That I could yield myself to the Lord. And he was my protection. Self-protection was not necessary. He was my provision. Scrounging for every dollar was not necessary. He was my peace. Trying to manufacture my own peace. And the things of this world did not have to happen. I could rest. Because that is the rest he's given us. To yield to Him. Now, these Christians, the Jewish Christians, had practiced this for, long, for a long time. So, just like these Christians, you may have grown insensitive or unaware of how much you navigate in the flesh among men. Favoritism is idolatry, it's self protection, it is the rejecting of the truth of the new birth. It holds in contempt the finished work of Christ. It has a lot of different manifestations in regarding men, according to color, intellect, power, and wealth, to name a few. However, to adopt these things, you end up regarding all men according to the flesh, including yourself. And you see yourself the same way. Do you see evil in that for the child of God? Now, in order to really sink this thinking in the minds of those he's writing to, James uses an illustration. And that's in verses 2 through 4. He says, For if a man comes into your meeting place wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, and you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in this good seat, and you tell the poor man you stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with the wrong motives? Now, James is using a hypothetical illustration, but no doubt one that they would be familiar with. A man comes into your meeting, and what is the first thing you notice? When we look to others, what is the first thing we notice? Now, he has gold rings on his finger, and really, the translation dumbs that down. If you look at the original language, the, the idea is that he is literally encrusted He has more than one gold ring on each finger, particularly the left hand, because that was a big deal with the Jews. The left hand, they would just absolutely decorate with gold. It was a big deal. He has gold rings and fine clothes. This man likely came to be seen and drew a sharp contrast to those who were poor. In the original language, the idea is not just some gold rings, but his fingers were covered in gold rings, which was common among the wealthy to display their wealth. And they had places in Rome where you could go and rent rings for special occasions. How about that? The fine clothing was not just well-dressed, but it was over-the-top ostentatious. This guy was putting on a show. And this proud peacock comes in first and is immediately noticed And then to strike an extreme contrast, James introduced a poor man who follows him in, in dirty clothes. Now, the poor of the Bible were facing starvation and did not possess much in the way of material goods. Poor in the Greek is patakos, and it means to crouch, to cringe, to cower down, or hide oneself for fear a picture of one crouching and cowering like a beggar with a tin cup to receive the pennies dropped in, is an adjective which describes one who crouches and cowers and is used as a noun to mean beggar. These poor were unable to meet their basic needs and were forced to depend Upon others in society. In classical Greek, these beggars would use one hand to lift out their cup or whatever they were collecting money in, and the other to cover their face for shame. They would literally cover themselves ashamed that they were unable to provide for themselves. These people were destitute, and dirty clothes doesn't even begin to describe what they're saying there. Dirty actually means filthy, covered in filth. That's what it means. So the picture here is someone who you wouldn't want to sit next to because they would reek. Someone who literally was destitute and likely starving. That's who followed this. Now look at the contrast he's setting up. But I don't want you to think that James came up with this hypothetical situation and pulled it out of the air. This is literally the contrast they dealt with every day. The rich and the poor. And in the Jewish system, they had a a very specific way of segregating these people out. But in the Christian system, there was to be no segregation. None. None. In the early church, the poor became teachers just like the rich might have. But the problem with the rich is that they were fairly self sufficient, so there was no dependency upon the Lord. You wouldn't want them teaching you, unless it was some kind of financial seminar, and we have Christ for that, don't we? We're going to walk in the truth, we're going to embrace. People from all walks of life and all situations and, and various forms of, of wasting because of this world. The house of God is not a place where there is favoritism. Yes, it's a place that has a very clear message, a very clear focus that is never to be compromised. But it is not a place where people are turned away because they smell bad or filthy or they're poor. Verse 3 says, And you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in this good seat and you tell the poor man, You stand over there and sit down on the floor by my footstool. You pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes The worldly special attention means to look intently, to pay close attention to an outward show of special respect for the rich men. The eyes of the entire assembly were on them. Now, unfortunately, we're very open here. We've got glass all the way across the front, so the eyes of the entire assembly are on you when you walk through the door. But it is not, it is not, to make judgments our hearts are warm to see a brother come through the door aren't they not these people they had already made an assessment they tell the rich man here's a good seat for you he's not just cordially offered any place but a good place which in the greek pertains to a a meeting a high standard of excellence or expectation possibly a seat with a cushion a place of honor And that reminds us of the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees who loved the chief seats in the synagogues. It's mentioned in Matthew chapter 23. Then in contrast, that poor fellow is not even offered a seat. Or even the footstool. He says, sit by my footstool. He doesn't tell him, oh, you can sit on my footstool. He says, sit on the floor. Doesn't even offer him his footstool. Again, this was a practice. It was not a singular event. But what is worse is the mindset that went with it. They had dulled their conscience to it. Why? Because they regarded themselves according to the flesh, therefore they regarded all men the same way. Now notice that in this illustration there's no indignation or rebuke from the others in the in the group, not even from the leadership. So James points to the obvious conclusion. Have you not discriminated among yourselves. And become judges with the wrong motives. And that word judges is not a compliment. You are acting in idolatry. You are setting yourself up as God. You are condemning people as though that were yours to do. But what is even worse is you have neglected and cast away the finished work of Christ. You do not see yourself as a spiritual being, so you do not see them as a spiritual being. That's a curse in your soul that you will perpetuate. The usher showed favoritism, thinking of what the rich man might do for the church if he received preferential treatment. Now this reflects a double-mindedness. I think James addressed that in the first chapter around the 8th verse. But he says, He was godless and unbelieving in his perspective regarding externals about the souls of men. James is calling these believers to wean their souls from a worldly perspective. Have you allowed the Lord, the Spirit of God, to sift your soul? Now, one of the things that we talk about constantly is that you invite the Spirit into your soul to bring balance. If you invite the Spirit of God into your soul, there are going to be things that that you are entertaining in your soul that He will point to. Unfortunately, if that gets uncomfortable, we, get, we allow ourselves to get distracted, don't we? God's dealing with us on the soul level. It's time to watch TV. When God's dealing with us on the soul level, it's time to pick up that magazine you've been wanting to read. Up the radio. And this is a almost an instinctive fleshly reaction to the work of the Spirit. At that point when we feel the conviction of the Spirit of God over the things that we have been entertaining in the soul, and there is a direct contrast. This is not ambiguous. He's not saying if, maybe, or might. The Spirit of God is very clear as He distinguishes what is of Him and what is of the world or the flesh. At that point, we need to stop and we need to say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. I will yield to you all. There is not a single thing in my soul that I want to hold against your will. I have no separate identity. Do you have a separate identity? Is there a duality, a double-mindedness in your thinking? Do you entertain the idea that you may be something apart from Christ? That is not what you were called to. The life that he gave you is so much infinitely better than living in a duality by inviting all kinds of distractions and worldly thinking into your soul. And one of the ways we start that paradigm, that momentum in our soul, is by making judgments of others. When you came into this world, how did you get any sense of who you were and what was acceptable and what was not? Right? Without. From others. That was your balance. Well now we're we're put in that position, God has given us a new being that does no longer get its balance from without, but gets its balance from within. So when we walk out in the world, we don't want to operate in the presumption that we know. Even in the simplest sense, we don't know. We are sheep. This is why Jesus compares us to sheep. And we yield our souls unto him. And we begin each day saying, Father, order my steps. Father, direct my thoughts. Father, help me to know your will in this day. That's how we are to live. That is the life of faith. Faith is not the intermittent confession of truth. Faith is the constant application of your belief to his word. Understand that this had been a constant practice and you would have no conviction concerning these things apart from the contrast between the new creation and the flesh. Remember this behavior was condoned and practiced in society. Now here's something that's going, going to present itself if it hasn't already in your life and that is that society is going to operate in a different normal. It's going to say it's okay to act this way.
0: Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the Radio Ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road and Blanco Woods, just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.